We're in Psalm 43, but we will be going back and forth between Psalm 43 and Psalm 42. As I said last week, these two psalms are very much connected. It's, it's quite a debate. It's not much a de- debate. Nobody that I've been reading is sinister as if, oh, we've got to make the psalms 149 because this is really one psalm. Nobody's suggesting that. Most people, most scholars do recognize that Psalm 42 and 43 are so much uh, similar in content and in style and all of the background information. If you'll notice, there's no title for Psalm 43. And so most believe, well, the Psalm 42 title works for Psalm 43 because it's very much in, in line with the same content and context. And, and so that is to say these Psalms fit very well together. Probably uh, they, they may have been one Psalm originally, Now I think it's fine that we keep them separate. Psalm 43 has slightly different um, content, but really content that agrees with Psalm 42. So it's almost like it's just another progression in in the psalm itself. As I said last week, this is a psalm of faith's lament and faith's hope. Remember I said that Christians lament by faith. So when... And I talked a little bit about our, the difference between complaining and lament. Lament is something that is, is urged along by faith. You know, when, when lamentations, if you go there, that's the ultimate idea in scripture and, and uh, book that the lamentation of a believer is rendered. And the whole book is essentially a lamentation by the apostle Jeremiah. And he's lamenting the sin of the people. He's lamenting the judgment that's come on Jerusalem. And all righteous things to lament because the righteous do look out at evil and and desire there to be good. It's a good thing to to look out on evil and even the experience of evil uh, that we go through. And the people that do us evil and things that happen that we see Satan seemingly is in uh, sort of a, a dominion role. Certainly not over Christ, but... In the hearts of man, and and sin is seem, seemingly rampant, and and it causes us to lament. But last week we saw that this psalmist seems to be lamenting. He seems to be in a, a place of despair because he's removed from the worship of God's people. He's removed from uh, the gathering together of God's people, and it probably, as I said last week, this is regarding David and his exile from Jerusalem when Absalom took over his throne for a while. And, and even though the sons of Korah probably were the ones who wrote this hymn or this psalm, they were probably with David wherever he was, and they were removed like him. And we know that David is lamenting many and various psalms that we've already considered in the past few years as we've been going through the psalms because of his alienation from the house of God. It's what he longs for, the assembly together of God's people, the congregation coming together, and the worship of God there is what the psalmist longs for, and that's what he's lamenting for. That's what he hopes for. Psalm 43, we'll see here in verse 1, begins with a prayer, a prayer of vindication. Now, this is something that we see reference to prayer in Psalm 42, but here he begins with a prayer, a supplication. Vindicate me, and, and it's promo- this, this is judge 
be my judge, pronounce me just, is, is essentially what he's praying for. Demonstrate that I am not unrighteous in my cause, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people or nation. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. One of the fundamental ways Scripture describes the wicked is that they are deceitful. Psalm 10, 7 says his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And this is speaking of the person that I've argued for in Psalms, the wicked are a people. That's a, it's not just a designation of someone who does evil, it's a designation of a standing before God. The wicked here. And they're defined by their deceitfulness, by their loose way they use their tongue, cursing, deceit, oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and iniquity. I always was sort of flabbergasted by the idea growing up that all liars have a place in the fire that is not quenched in Revelation. Liars. Liars. Everybody. I mean, I remember thinking... I lie? Is lying really worth hellfire? And yet, when you think of the, the way that all Scripture speaks about lies, especially as it contrasts with the truth, it tears down that which God reveals himself to be, and that is true. And it destroys and it kills. And here David is saying, this is the way that I've been oppressed by my enemies. They've been deceitful towards me and unjust towards me. And this is how they've oppressed me. Now, it's often the case that prayer, uh, that the case that this, the prayer to defend the righteous against the attacks of the wicked often come with, with this connotation of injustice or, and in fact, it should come. It necessarily should come. You know, we have to be careful. When we read this lament and when we think about this oppression of the wicked, we can be such good biblicists that we think, oh, <laughs> I'm such a sinner that, that I shouldn't expect any better. <laughs> and in a sense, we are, we are sinners that don't deserve better than we have it. But if we, if we don't understand the context of injustice and oppression and evil, we won't cry out to God for deliverance from them. If we don't bemoan and lament oppression and wickedness and injustice, as the psalmist is doing, we're not going to cry out to God for deliverance, which we must and should do. We should see wicked and, and not desire that it continue. Even if we understand, oh, we don't deserve better, fundamentally, the psalmist is declaring here, in this circumstance, before you, judge between them and myself. I don't think that's sinful for us who know what the Bible says about our depravity to say, Lord, judge your people's cause. Judge between your servant and the wicked. Make a distinction between them and me or us. And his prayer is for vindication. It's a prayer to set things right as the judge. But this prayer depends on something underneath it. It depends on a knowledge that the psalmists have, and we can't take this for granted. Why should God defend the psalmist? Why should he judge for his case? 
And I think for us to cry out to God a prayer of faith like this, a deliverance, we have to know something about him. And this psalm has much to say about God. It has much to say about the attributes of God and who he reveals himself to, to be so that when we pray to God, we pray with the knowledge of who he is. If we don't know who God is, how do we know he cares about justice, <laughs> right? If he's righteous or if he's a God uninterested, why would we come to him at all? But he first says uh, in regards to his, his prayer about what he knows about God is that God is and he's a rewarder. And I take that from Hebrews chapter 3. God is and he is a rewarder. Chapter 42, verse 8, if you go back to Psalm 42, verse 8, he says, By day Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Now we know back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God reveals himself to be Yahweh. That's his name he gives to Moses. I am who I am, and the Hebrew is essentially the, the tetragrammaton, if you know all of that lingo that lingo this is essentially where we get the 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 name Yahweh and it means the uncreated one the one who is uh the Yahweh commands his steadfast love so when he references this name of God he's calling certainly to mind who this God is he is the true God he is the only God that's Yahweh is a very definitive uh, designation from God himself that I am the only God. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul teach about the aseity of, or aseity, he would say the aseity, I've heard it's pronounced different ways as well, of God and how that doctrine of God's being just en enlightened his heart. It brought him to worship. I mean, just consider that just for a moment. Everything else is dependent Everything that's in existence is dependent on something. Our lives are dependent upon, yeah, we can look scientifically, circular system, blood and oxygen levels and all of that stuff, but that doesn't get to the ground of that we're dependent on God for our life. What about forces of nature? I was talking to our kids the other day about, about nature and gravity and those things, and scientists, we can kind of observe and we can see these laws at work, but we don't know what they are. We don't know what gravity is. <laughs> it's just we know how it operates. And we're not even sure, you know, quite how it operates all the time because there are different things that happen in the universe that we're observing now and there seems to be flux. And so that, that is all to say this, is that there is one being who doesn't depend on anything for his existence, and that's God. And that's this name when David is praying or when he's... Uh, reciting this name of God that he's revealed himself to, to his people by the day the Lord commands. This is God who is over all. He commands his steadfast love. That's his kased in the day and at night his song is with me. God alone is God. And he is God at all times, sovereign over all things, day and night. Kids, God is always God. That's one of the things. When we go to bed at night and we got all the things we're worried about and concerned about, we recognize God is God right now in the night. He's God in the day. Isn't there a song? God in the day is still God in the night. Something I forget how it goes. But this is what he's saying. 
There is no time when God ceases to be God. And that's no small thing. Jesus gives the parable of the unjust judge in order to contrast him with this God who is. And that is to say, not only is God exists, not only is he God, always God, and never ceases to be God, but he also cares. He commands his steadfast love. This unjust judge does the will of the, the, the importunate, importunate asker, right? But God the Father delights to give good things to his children, to those who ask him. He will hear us. And this is what we see. The psalmist knows this of God. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and as at night his song is with me. You know, this is one of the things that philosophers cannot come to grasp of. And this is why we need to be knowing God through the word of God is because how can God be holy in this regard, absolutely distinct in his being, and yet be near to us? And that's exactly the God we see. And so the psalmist knows this of God. He is, God is, and he is a rewarder. And that's why, I said last week, that's why the psalmist diligently seeks him, because he knows this about God by faith. Secondly, God is faithful. Unchanging, we could say. He's immutable. Psalm 42, 9, I say to God, my rock Now, God is said to set the wicked, that class of people, the unrighteous, in slippery places, Psalm 73, 18. But he himself is the stability of his people, and we should never forget that. We are never so strong or so capable or have such things in in hand that we do not need God underneath us. There's not a moment, and I'm not talking to uphold our lives. I'm talking for every, any good thing at all. Apart from God being our foundation and our rock, our stability, apart from him being faithful and unchanging, we have no hope. <laughs> because our hope would be shaken from this moment to the next moment. Have you noticed that life brings all sorts of chaotic things. I shouldn't say life brings. In God's providence, we experience all sorts of things that shake us. But God is not shaken. God is not shaken. He remains true, immovable. That's the idea of this rock, is someone who is stable, someone who is firm, a firm ground for our feet to stand on you know we often talk about an extraordinary person with that don't we oh this person's my rock and we see the value of it when we talk about people like that they're a rock they're just so solid and that something so admirable about somebody that we can look to and we can say they have a certain faithfulness about them a certain quality that just remains And it doesn't seem like it wanes and waxes with good times and bads. They just are stable. But even the most stable person is unstable in the final analysis. No matter what, we're always giving way to change of some sort, sometimes for the worst. God has never moved. He never changes. A faith that rests in him is a faith that is secure. 
even when things appear otherwise. This also must, in our mind, bring up what the New Testament says about Christ, our rock. You see, the rock was a very redemptive theme in the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul, in order to encourage the Corinthian church to resist temptation to idolatry, to unbelief, to sins that would bring in uh, destruction in the church, the Apostle tells them in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, that our fathers... Now, this is remarkable, and we need to take notice of this. He's speaking to a Gentile church, Corinthian church. Sure, there were Jews among them, but this is, this is a New Testament church. And he says, our fathers, the Jews, he's speaking. Our fathers, God's covenant people, were all under the cloud, Shekinah glory, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Why? How, how does he demonstrate that? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Who is that? And the rock was Christ. Christ was the means of the stability of Israel when they were in all of those unstable places. <laughs> he was the mean of their provision. He was the means of their sustenance. All the things that they couldn't provide for themselves or couldn't handle or do for themselves, it was Christ who was the means of all of that mercy for them. And that rock is continual and he's abiding. And of course, Christ is our rock. And nothing demonstrates the nature of God's immutability better than Jesus himself. God will not let him, his people perish. Jesus is a life that continues forever, the scripture says. His ministry as our high priest lasts forever. There's no end to it. So that's a rock that abides. It's continual. We can trust in him. God, our salvation. Chapter 42, verse 11. The psalmist says, my salvation and my God. And he obviously repeats this frame at the end of chapter 43 as well. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, the song of Moses, Moses says this, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. God doesn't have an attribute uh, of necessarily a singular attribute of being savior. Many attributes in God are, are why we understand him as the savior. Many of his attributes are, if not all, are in regards to the salvation of his people. And so it's not like it when, when the psalmist says, my salvation and my God, he's not saying God God has an attribute of salvation, but God being salvation for his people is dependent on, upon all of God's attributes, if I could say it that way. His will determined to save in eternity. His wisdom planned our salvation in eternity. His love directs his saving hand to his elect. His power applies his salvation. His immutability will see our salvation through. His justice and mercy demonstrate his goodness in our salvation. You could go on and on when it comes to God and who he is and how that bears out for our salvation. Salvation, according to scripture, is truly and only of the Lord. 
And in addition to this, God has plainly become our salvation himself. Not just that he puts things in order in order for us to be saved, but he himself becomes our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is salvation. We could say it like that. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's in God that salvation resides. Scripture reveals that God's plan of salvation was with him in eternity. And at least one reason why God created was to demonstrate himself to be the Savior. You know, the problem of evil is a great problem when we come to scripture the problem of evil is a great problem for us to wrap our minds around and i would argue that god himself being god and god's plan of salvation and why he would love sinners and give his son i would i would argue that when we come to scripture the reason why we struggle uh with with breaking these these problems of God's sovereignty and our responsibility and God's love and and the problem of evil and we we come and there's these huge big big issues that we have a very difficult time to consolidate in our mind and I've said it I said it this past Wednesday but when we talk about the God of Scripture, we are talking about a God who we did not make. <laughs> we didn't make him according to our understanding. We didn't create and mold somebody that we could, we could bound up in a nice, neat package. Who can know the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Where we are encouraged is not by what we can what we can comprehend in the, in the analysis of God's uh, infin, infinite uh, quality as the creator and, and God himself and all of these uh, relationships of, of how his sovereignty works out with his created purposes and all of these things, where we come to the encouragement that the psalmist has when he prays is when we come to the scriptures and we see that God is who he is, revealed himself to be there. Here, here's, the psalmist is not creating for himself a picture of God that scripture doesn't paint of God. And I say that, I really kind of maybe said that in a confusing way. But here's why I'm trying to say what I'm trying to say. Maybe it'll help you. We are not helped. Our faith is not increased by going outside of Scripture and, and by our own intellect, by our own power, by our own reason, our own logic, determining what God must be like. That will never increase our faith. That will only hinder our faith. So when we come to the problem of evil and we come to the problem of, of reconciling why God would give his son for me, 
what we need to do is go, the scriptures teach that God is good. The scriptures teach that he did love me and gave his son for me. The scriptures teach that God is God and absolutely sovereign because he's God. And the scriptures teach that sinful man is responsible for our sin. You see, I just say all that to say, if we're in a place where depression, lament is part of our condition, we need to go to the God of Scripture to find encouragement, to find strength, to find faithfulness. And that is not to say those issues of those, those matters we wrestle with are not matters that we should continue to wrestle with. I think, I remember R.C. Sproul saying, I don't think there, we'll know the answer to the problem of evil on this side of eternity. I don't know if we'll be able to comprehend it because it seems to reside in the incomprehensibility of God himself. And I remember he would say, Gerstner, John Gerstner, his professor, said, how dare you be so proud to say that we'd never, just because you don't know yourself, how dare you say we will never have a, a grasp on that problem. But, but that, that is to say, maybe we'll understand that issue, this side of eternity at some point. But I don't think our faith should rest upon whether or not we can decipher that absolutely in our mind. It needs to rest upon what God has revealed to us in his word. And lastly, I bring that to this point. God is true. That's why. We cannot, the more that we go along into the modern day, I've, I've come to the conclusion that every, every people group, at least in the last 500 years, maybe 1,000 years of human existence, have deemed themselves to be thoroughly modern. You know, we're a modern people. Now we got things under control. Now we know what's going to happen. But if you look back at Second Peter, Peter says they were saying the same thing to Noah. You know, like scoffing at Noah. Oh, you think a God created all this? You know, scoffers are going to be around and everybody's going to think they've got the answer. The answer is that God is true. And the psalmist knows it. Chapter 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Most scholars see light and truth here as personified in a God, in a person. And certainly we quickly think of our Lord's words. I am the way, the truth, and the light in John 14, 6. And life is often coupled with the idea of light. In him was life that is in Christ and the life was the light of men, John 1.4. The psalmist could very well mean, uh, uh, your light and truth, may it be the means of guiding my way. But more than guiding, I think he means that you bring me. In other words, if he's speaking in, in a personified way, sent out your light, he's speaking in a way of, may you be my light, my truth. May you lead me back. And one scholar says this psalm really takes a different direction at this point. 
You know, the lament of the psalm leading up to it is, oh, I'm alienated from your people. Oh, I wish I could lead them back to the throng, to the, to the worship. And I don't think we should judge the psalmist as being wrong for saying that. But here we see that his dependence is on God. In Psalm 43, his dependence shifts. Yes, he still has that cry of lament in verse 2. But now he's saying, God, lead me back to yourself. Send out your light and your truth. Lead let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And if we personify this, then we have to take this as speaking of Christ. Christ leads us to the Father. He brings us to God. He is the way, the truth, and the light. We need to take note that the psalmist depends on God to bring him where he wants to go. Where does he want to go? He wants to go to the house of God. He wants to be with God where God is. He wants to worship God with God's people. And so, finally, we see his joy. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Now remember, as I just said, the psalmist just prays that, it, that God would bring him to the house of God. The altar of God was, of course, the place where sacrifices were rendered up to God. Among the sacrifices offered were thanksgiving and praise offerings, which is probably most likely what the psalmist says here, because he says, I will praise you with the lyre. And so he's saying, God, bring me back. I need you to bring me back into your presence so that I can render up to you praise. As long as the psalmist was removed from God's presence, he was not satisfied. I said last week, that is true. That should be true of every believer. And in a sense, that longing for God's presence should be, in a sense, something that we recognize when we come together for worship. You know, when we're unable to come and be with God's people for worship, there, that longing should be in us to come and Worship with God amongst God's people, God's house, as I argued last week. And that's where we praise God. That's where we lift up our hearts, not just in singing, but that's where even as you hear the preaching, I hope your, your heart is yearning, it's desiring, it's contemplating what's said, and it's, and it's even being corrected to be brought back into that desire. But it's right for us to go further up and further in when we talk about the better and new covenant and what it means that we come to the house of God. I said last week the house of God regards not just a place that we go to, not a place where the ark of the covenant resides or an altar resides, but Ephesians 2.20, I'll start there and I'll read through verse 22, says, we, Jew and Gentile, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, do you hear that? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now this is not to be confused with the idea that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's true as well. The Holy Spirit resides in us individually. But he's speaking of the church, the congregation, as 
the temple of the living God here. He speaks about it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.16 as well and 2 Corinthians 6.16. And as I said, this is a profound reason why believers are not at home apart from the congregating or the assembling, the worshiping of God together because we are not who we have been saved to be. We are the house of God. Is it? Now, I say that and you hear that, but do you recognize how profound that is? That we are here tonight, just a few of us, and God is in the midst of us. Now, if you were to, I think if you were to tell a Jewish person back in David's day that this is what God was doing, he was going to do this, he would have, he would have just been exuberant. <laughs> I, I think he would have been outside of himself. You mean you can meet anywhere? You don't have to go up to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Samaria. You can worship God in spirit and in truth, and he will be with you, and he will be among you, and he will be in you, building you up, a place for God to be in his presence. So much of what the church does now is just to entertain people. I'll tell you what, the entertainment of this world, I don't know what you think about it, but it does not satisfy. It is not sufficient for us as human beings. It, it lasts for a little while. Usually, if you're watching something or if you, what, whatever you're doing to be entertained, it, so, most of the time you don't eat, you're not even interested. But that can't be the, the way it is with us when we come and gather together. Now, sometimes the pastor isn't very interesting. <laughs> sometimes our own weakness. You know what Paul says here? We are being built up together. There is an ongoing process amongst God's people. Not all of the elect have been brought in, and not all of them are here. <laughs> you know, there, there's a localized quality to this temple, but it's a temple nonetheless. But I say that to say, this should give us a flavor for something that's still future. You know, you and I still have a future hope when it comes to going to the house of God. Maybe, maybe we should think of it as when it regards being the house of God. Now that gets into strange territory in our thinking, and maybe it's not right to say it. But go to Revelation 21. You know, Paul calls the church of the living God the household of God. The household of God. We are not yet perfect. We are not yet sinless perfect. We are not yet complete. All the number of God's people have not been brought in. We're still witnessing. We're still spreading the gospel out there. We're still praying that uh, sinners will come to faith in Jesus. But there is a day... That's still future that we look forward to. And that future has to do with where God dwells. Revelation 21, I'm going to read verse 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So just going to ask a simple question. What is he showing, John? 
the bride, the, the wife of the lamb. That's the church, right? Very clear. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You know what we never see? We never see a bride in this vision. You know what we see? A city. John is told, I'm going to show you the bride adorned for her husband, the lamb, the wife of the lamb. And she's adorned for him. And then he shows him a city. The angel shows John a city. What is that? I think this is a representative. You see, Revelation is not an easy book. I think the city represents the bride. I think that's what we're, we should expect. Because there is no bride otherwise. But what we see is a city in a city that is absolutely perfection. In its dimensions, in its beauty, in its splendor, splendor there is nothing lacking in this holy city. And I saw a holy city Jerusalem. By the way, the New Covenant believers are called Jerusalem in Galatians 4. And I saw it coming down out of heaven from God, or we relate to Jerusalem, the New Covenant, having the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Now, you know what? Let's, I'm just, I was just going to read a little portion. You don't have to go anywhere, do you? <laughs> we'll, we'll be done soon. I just want to keep reading because it's beautiful. I think we need to see this. And I think rather than seeing this, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say something here. I hope I don't offend anybody. You know those pictures of the New Jerusalem as like some huge crazy cube that looks like a growth on the world, on the globe? I don't think that's the way we should think of the New Jerusalem. I, I don't think we should... Think of it as this huge cube growing out of some part of the world. I think we should view it as a bride. Being described here as something extraordinarily holy and glorious. Reflecting the glory of her husband. So let's read about it. And this is not simple. I don't claim that it is simple. Revelation 21 here, let me get in the right place. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. That's important. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations. We're told the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod. Twelve thousand stadia, its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth 
carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, sopras, and eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelfth, twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, that picture of this city. Now, remember, the angel said the vision was of the bride. And now we see a city, a beautiful city, a perfect city, a glorious city. But notice where God is. If you go to chapter 22, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. In it. And his servants will worship him. At the end of chapter 21, it says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, the very people that make up the church. There's a day when we, with the psalmist, now say, Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him, my salvation and my God. And we will do that without any sin, we will do that without any lamentation. We will do that without any incompleteness at all. Because our home is with God. God's house, God's abiding is with man, is the good news about eternal life. His house is our house, if you will. Philippians 3.20, and I'll just close by reading this, in 21 but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so that gives us hope now, and that gives us a certain future. And I think the, psalm, the psalmist would say, Amen.